Well, are we ready? Good. So, good evening to you all. You're all very welcome. My name is Shane Mulhall, and the title to the talk tonight is Philosophy and Success. And the subtitle is Only the Wise Can Be Said to Be Truly Successful, which is a very bad start for all of us then. Now, our first question is, what is real success? And our concept of success goes to the core of all our human activities. Everything we do, relationships, careers, etc., tends to be measured in terms of success or failure by our peers, friends, relatives, and relations. But most importantly, by ourselves. So what is real success? We may relate success to the satisfaction of desires. And if we desire to be a world champion runner and achieve that, then we would describe ourselves as successful. However, the drug addict who finds his drug believes he has succeeded. But to us, he's destroying himself and he's a failure. So again, what is real success? Ralph Waldo Emerson described a successful man as follows. He says, to laugh often and much, to win the respect of intelligent people and the affection of children, to earn the appreciation of honest critics and endure the betrayal of false friends, to appreciate beauty, to find the best in others, to leave the world a little better, to know even one life has breathed easier because you lived. This is what he called success. And is this how we see success ordinarily? It is possible to be a successful businessman, a successful politician, a successful husband or wife, and we are a successful businessman when we achieve the objective of a businessman. And likewise, we are a successful human being when we achieve the objective of a human being. So what is the ultimate objective of a human being? In religious terms, this could be termed as finding our way back to God. In practical philosophy, it is described as to know thyself. And so to be a successful human being is to know thyself. And because it takes wisdom to know thyself, this is why only the wise can be said to be truly successful. Now what about the pursuit of success under ignorance? Where there is success under ignorance, then nothing fails like success. All success under ignorance fails. It always fails because it never delivers the desired outcome. Despite the accumulation, etc., there is not satisfaction, there is not rest, and there is not peace of mind. A Dutch philosopher from the 17th century, Benedict Spinoza, he said that we are obsessed with three things, riches, fame, and pleasure. And riches could be to do with goods of any value, anything from a cigarette or a cup of tea up to a billion dollars. Fame could mean the adulation of a nation or simply that a boss recognizes your work. Pleasure is anything from a cream bun to a, a long holiday in Barbados. And according to him, we can hardly think of anything outside of these three. That at any one time we are obsessed with one or other of them. He points out a dichotomy, however, because he says we also feel and know we are eternal. On the one hand, we have this obsession, and on the other hand, deep down, 
we feel that there is more than just these three to life. And in the light of this dichotomy, we can ask ourselves, will the attainment of riches, fame and pleasure bring me happiness, contentment, rest or success? If we were given a large sum of money tomorrow and we were famous and we had an endless variety of pleasures, can we be sure that this would yield us happiness, contentment or rest? So let us look at some aspects of success under ignorance. The first thing about success under ignorance is that it's always relative success. Being relative and not total, it never fully satisfies. So what happens is we feel successful in the company of those who are not particularly successful. And we do not feel very successful in the company of those who are extremely successful. It depends on our relationship with others. So to give an example, if you were in a, an organization and you were earning 40,000 euro and you expected that at Christmas you were going to be reviewed to 45,000 euro, that this is what your grade would get if the boss was pleased with you. So anyway, the boss calls you in and he says to you, look, Shane, I'm pleased with you and I'm going to give you 47,000 euro. So you suppress the smirk, accept it reluctantly and walk out of the room. Anyway, you decide that you will share a part of the 2,000 by buying a round of drinks that night with all the people who are on the same grade as you, now knowing that you've done better than everybody else. Anyway, after a pint or two, they all inform you that they got 50,000 euro. <laughs> all right? And so from being highly successful, you're now a miserable failure. <laughs> the second thing is that it's ever-changing. Our concept of success is changing all the time. As a child, success may have been the pleasure of our parents, getting a sweet from our neighbor, or learning our tables. As we get older, it might be success in state examinations or in some sporting activity. And by the time we are 21, success is graduation, getting a job, and finding a partner for life. And then it changes to families and careers, and eventually pensions and slippers and a burial plot <laughs> in a nice spot in the cemetery <laughs> even though it's completely irrelevant to you <laughs> but anyway now despite our efforts to achieve wealth success in our careers and our relationships can we ever finally say I have done it I've achieved it so is there anybody in this room who can say well I've done it now I can finally rest. Instead, is it not a continuous attempt to achieve something extra? And in the end, do we really know any more what it is that we're trying to achieve? The next factor with regard to success under ignorance is desire. And the fulfillment of our desires determines whether we see ourselves as successful or not. We can only desire according to our knowledge because we cannot desire what we do not know. And if our knowledge is limited, then our desires must be desires under ignorance. They therefore cannot produce true success and false success never satisfies. The search goes on and on for that success which will yield satisfaction. And it is never attained. The hunger for success matches perfectly 
the hunger of our dissatisfaction. The nature of desire is that it's not quelled by attainment, but it is actually fueled by attainment. And the worst curse we can put on someone in the Arab world is said to be, may you get what you desire. It's probably not a curse that you have used, but apparently it is the worst curse that you can possibly put on someone. Because we then condemn that person to endlessly increasing desires. As a result, their mind is forever filled with ends and means pursuing the satisfaction of the ever-increasing desires. The view of the wise is that desire is the problem. And opposed to this, there's our view, which is if I can satisfy my desires, I will be successful and I will be happy. Now, an argument we use to support this view is that desire is necessary because it's desire that motivates me. Desires get us up out of bed. Desires make the rich man rich and makes the successful person successful. Desire gets us where we want to go, and this we call success. Well, is this true? Is desire necessary for success? And the answer is that desire does move some human beings. It moves the man without love in his heart. With love in his heart, he's moved in a much more superior and beneficial way. However, if he does not have love in his heart, then without desire, he would become inert. So desire is useful for those who do not love. However, as said before, it will never satisfy, whereas love in the heart does satisfy, fully satisfies. And let us see how useful desire is for the successful achievement or execution of any action. There's a great Chinese sage whose name was Trang Su. This is what he said. When the archer shoots for no particular prize, he has all his skills. When he shoots to win a brass buckle, he's already nervous. When he shoots for a gold prize, he goes blind. He sees two targets and is out of his mind. His skill has not changed, but the prize divides him. He cares. He thinks more of winning than of shooting, and the need to win drains him of power. So desires inhibit the execution of action because they split the mind between the execution of the action and the result of the action. And this reduces our potential, our energy, and our own natural brilliance. In inhibiting the execution of action, desire actually reduces the chance of a successful outcome. The desire for the outcome always results in additional unnecessary effort being put into the action to achieve the outcome. And this causes tension and considerable loss of energy, thus reducing the possibility of success. The next factor of success under ignorance is to do with our own self-image. Whatever we see ourselves as determines what we consider success to be. So if we see ourselves as a body, then success will be seen as health, fitness, good looks, strength, youth, these sort of things. If we see ourselves as mind, 
then success would be seen as education, knowledge, understanding, capacity to analyze, the power to decide or to attend. If we see ourselves as heart, then success would be seen as the quality of our relationships with wife and husband and children and parents and friends, or happiness, or freedom from anger and jealousy. If we see ourselves as a function, such as a businessman, then it would be how big and profitable the organization is. If we see ourselves as mother, then it would be whether the children love us and how well they turn out. By identifying with the limited, i.e. a body, mind and heart, a false self, an ego, is created, which is itself limited. It seeks to grow beyond its own limited image of itself through desires, so that it may attain fulfillment. It believes that by the fulfillment of its desires, it can become limitless, i.e. be successful. However, when we operate from the ego, we become separate. We cut ourselves off from the energy and intelligence of the universe. Then we have to rely on our own limited resources. And having limited resources, all that is on offer is limited success for us. And one thing is certain. If what we identify with is limited and transient, i.e. the body, mind and heart, then our success will be limited and transient. The next factor of success under ignorance is dependency. And if we spend our lives seeking riches, fame and pleasure, there will always be a dependency on them. And being dependent on them for our happiness, we are not free. And so we will always struggle to obtain more in order that we might become free. But we only become more and more dependent. And dependency is slavery, and no slave experiences success. The next factor that arises naturally with success under ignorance is fear. Because success under ignorance is related to things which pass, there will always be an accompanying fear, irrespective of the degree of success. Having attained it, the fear is that it will come to an end. Having possessed it, the fear is that we might be dispossessed of it. And this means that it can never be fully enjoyed. The accumulation has to go on and on, just in case we might lose it. So there is no rest. The result is we are afraid to fully spend it, but retain it in a miserly fashion. And thus there is possession, but without full enjoyment. The fear is that if it is consumed, it will not be replaced. So as age increases, there is a reduction of consumption and also a reduction in risk-taking. The courage that yielded the success is now replaced by caution in order to ensure retention of what has been accumulated. So we are miserly, i.e. miserable, unable to spend what we have accumulated and suspicious that others are trying to take it all away from us. And life is simply lots of work. Firstly, to get what we have 
and then even more work to retain it. Now, there are certain factors which guarantee failure in life. So if you really want to guarantee that your life is a miserable failure now, you only have to master the following qualities. So there are six factors which absolutely guarantee failure in life. And if they are present in our being, then they must be rooted out. Their fruit is to ensure that our lives are small and insignificant, that whatever our talents are, are not fully utilised, and that whatever opportunities present themselves are not availed of. So are you ready for them? You can tick yourself off, as I say. <laughs> well, these are anger, fear, excessive sleep, the absolute maximum being six hours, and only at night. <laughs> Procrastination, daydreaming or inattentiveness, and laziness. And for those of you who weren't there, the one was daydreaming or inattentiveness. <laughs> well, so, for example, the fearful can never succeed. Anyway, thank God there's nobody in this room with any of those six. So we've looked at success under ignorance. And now it's necessary to look at what is true success. Well, Sri Shantananda Saraswati, the man whom the school put all its questions to, he said that true philosophy leads us to being a companion of the self and master of the world simultaneously. Now, in this simple statement is the key to understanding ultimate success for the human being in all aspects of life. And we're going to take it in reverse order and consider mastery of the world first. So by mastering our own world, we will master the world at large. Our world is to be considered as our body, mind and heart. And without control of these, we are a slave to them. And they cannot be directed in a successful manner. So are we in control of our body, minds and hearts? With regard to our bodies, do we overeat, overdrink, sleep too much, pander to its needs, etc., etc.? With regard to the mind, can it really attend? Can it discriminate between what is important and what is not important? Is it free from doubt? Is it decisive? With regard to our heart, is it often overcome by emotions such as greed and anger and worry and fear? And if we say to our heart, stop worrying, will it? Or does it appear to have a will of its own? If we say to it, just be happy with what you have, does it obey us? Well, man is said to be able to live at three levels. The level of the animal, the level of man, and the level of the divine. And as a slave to the body, he lives as an animal. With restraint of body, mind and heart, he becomes human. And with mastery of body, mind and heart, he becomes divine. And reveals all his divine qualities, which are often referred to as the virtues. Socrates tells us a remarkable thing. He says, I tell you that virtue comes not from money. But from virtue 
comes money and every other good of man, whether public or private. So according to Socrates, who is said to have been the wisest of all, the sole source of money and every other good of man is virtue. So if you really are looking for success, then you should practice virtue, according to Socrates. Mastery of body, mind and heart allows man to be virtuous and therefore allows him to be successful. And to be master of the world, we first need to be master of ourselves. So how are we to be masters of ourselves? Well, let's look at the body first of all. How does one master the body? The body is mastered by measure. It thereby enjoys health, vitality, strength, etc. Again, the Shankracharya says, measure is not negation. It's not deprivation. It is that which is sufficient, which satisfies the need. Now, not the want, but the need. And elsewhere he says, measured life keeps all miseries and troubles away and allows a healthy, happy and unified life. It increases power and expands scope. With regard to the mind, how is the mind mastered? Well, the mind is mastered by reason, and it thereby enjoys clarity, intelligence, concentration, discrimination, and decisiveness. And there are a number of factors we need to consider in relation to our use in mind, if there is to be success in our lives. The first thing is the scale of thought that we enjoy. Again, the Shankaracharya says that the goodness of any action can be determined by the amount of people that benefit from it. So the more who benefit from it, the more goodness there is in the action. And as Socrates says, it is from goodness or virtue that success in terms of wealth and all the other goods of man come. So a very good question for us to ask again and again is for whose sake is this action that I'm undertaking? Or if we want to make it a real question, we could say, for whose sake is this life? This life that I'm living? Is it just for me? Is it for a few people, those that I say that I love? Or is it for all? Marsilio Ficino, the Renaissance philosopher in Italy said, it was not for small things, but for great, that God created man, who knowing the great are not satisfied with small things. Indeed, it was for the limitless alone that he created man, who are the only beings on earth to have rediscovered their infinite nature and who are not fully satisfied by anything limited, however great that thing may be. So to have a big life, one must have big thoughts. Pandit Nehru, who was the first president of India after independence, said, We were not great men, but we aspired to great ideals, and that made us into great men. So do we want to live great lives? And are our lives great now? And if not, when will they be great lives? 
What great ideal do we live by? And if not, what great ideal are we willing to live by? Now often, when presented with ideals such as love your enemies, the reaction in the mind is that's simply not practical for me. And a great sage from India called Weiwei Kananda said, with regard to this, he said, do not lower the ideal to the practical. Rather, raise the practical to the ideal. Little ideas become fixed ideas, and with fixed ideas, we'll soon be out of date, out of touch, living small lives. I can't remember when this was, but I think it was sometime in the early 70s. And at this stage, the Japanese were starting to import their cars into England. And there was a company there called British Leyland. Some of you might not remember it because it doesn't exist anymore. But it was one of the greatest car companies of its time. The chairman of British Leyland was being interviewed on the television with regard to these imports of Japanese cars. And he poo-pooed them and said they were no threat to British Leyland. And the interviewers said to him, well, you know, they're even now giving radios as standard in the car. And the chairman of British Leyland replied, who would want to listen to a radio in a car? <laughs> and that's why we don't have British Leyland anymore. In order to have mastery of the mind, we need to understand how the mind really works. So the first thing is, you should never, ever, ever use your mind. That's what gets you into all your trouble. <laughs> you never use the mind. It's not for using. You rest the mind. It is from stillness that creativity arises, not activity. The greater the stillness of the mind, the greater the creativity or inspiration, or the greater the intelligence available to you at that time. Desires create activity or agitation in the mind, so they reduce the intelligence available to the mind at the time. So when we are full of desire, it clouds our judgment. Just think of when you're in a tremendous rush and you want to overtake someone. That's when you misjudge the oncoming traffic. The second factor with regard to the mind is that resolution strengthens the mind. So you always commit the mind through resolution. Abraham Lincoln said, always bear in mind that your own resolution to success is more important than any other one thing. So what is the correct way to make a resolution? And there's a gentleman in the school in Dublin called Brian McGill, who you may have heard giving talks or being tutored by, and he once put this question to Leon McLaren, the man who founded the School of Philosophy worldwide. He said to Mr. McLaren that every day he made a thousand resolutions and every day he broke a thousand resolutions. So he wondered how was it possible to make a resolution that you would stick to. So Mr. McLaren asked him, well, how do you make resolutions? And so Brian, I'll make up this example, said something like, well, I say things like, I will give up chocolate. And we know how that one fails, right? So, I will give up chocolate. So, Mr. McLaren said, just leave out the I. 
You see, the I who's going to give up chocolates now has disappeared, you know, one hour later. When chocolates appear, he runs away and is replaced by a greedy little piggy who wants to eat all the chocolates. But if you leave out the I, so if you say there will be no more chocolates eaten, then you don't have to rely on that I hanging around. It can go away and the resolution remains. The next factor, if we are to master our minds, is we need to understand the creation. Now firstly, life is full of opportunities for success. Everybody gets them. The question is, do we avail of them? The key question for us is, do we recognize what is presented to us as opportunities, or do we often reject what comes our way? Secondly, all important is the timing. As it says in the Bible, unto everything there is a season. When the season or time is right, then you seize the day. And he who hesitates is lost, and that's why we never procrastinate. Thirdly, the creation works under law. So we should know the laws of this creation. One of them is, as you sow, so shall you reap. And there are no exceptions. And if you'd like to know this, in the Mahabharata, which is a famous epic from the Indian tradition, in one sentence, it tells you how to become wealthy beyond your wildest dreams. So will I leave that sentence out and just move on? <laughs> Some of you haven't overcome greed yet. Okay. Well, this is the sentence. Simply by the making of gifts does a man become wealthy. How about that? Simply by the making of gifts does a man become wealthy. Now the real gift you have to give is yourself. So when you give yourself to work, people will pay you for your work. When you give yourself in relationships, you will be loved in return. But simply by the making of gifts does a man become wealthy. This creation is a creation of exchange. Give and we shall receive, and until we give, we cannot receive. The more we give, the more we shall receive. If it is given grudgingly, or as a bargaining tool, it does not work. So it must be joyous giving. And giving and receiving are the two aspects of the flow of creation. Stop one, and we automatically stop the other. According to Jesus, whatever you give, you get one hundredfold, which is slightly more than what the bank pays you on your deposit account. <laughs> this is the law of reciprocation. If we want joy, then give joy. If we want love, then give love. If we want attention and appreciation, then give attention and appreciation. And if we want to get what we want, then help others to get what they want. The next factor with regard to understanding the creation is that it's a creation of interdependence. We need to recognize the need and value of others. 
Andrew Carnegie, who was one of the wealthiest Americans ever to live, said in relation to his success, I am merely a man who knows how to enlist in his service better men than himself. And if I can say this, this is something that somebody said to me once and it's just so true. He said, a good employee will make you money no matter how much you pay him. And a bad employee will cost you money no matter how little you pay him. Lastly, we're not in control of the creation. We're not God. I know it's very disappointing, but that's the way it is. We are not God. We cannot make things happen. You cannot actually make your own success. Because you're not in control of the creation. Nisargadatta, another sage from India, said, the outcome of any event is determined by innumerable factors of which our efforts are merely one. The laws of creation control how events unfold, not you. So understand the laws and obey the laws and success must follow. It won't be your success. It may be given to you through these laws, but it won't be yours. The next factor is that we need to be intelligent. We need to learn from experience. We may not be able to avoid making errors, but we can avoid repeating them. As it says, paying once is enough. Real success is not just about good fortune. It is also to do with defeating adversity. So those who have not the apparent trappings of success, but who have defeated adversity, also enjoy success. I don't know if you remember a young man from Canada called Terry Fox. Anybody remember this young man? Anyway, as a, a young man, I think in his 20s, he got cancer. And when he got cancer, it involved them removing the lower half of one of his legs. So he decided anyway that he would run marathons every day, crossing from one coast of Canada to the next coast of Canada. And if you ever look at the map, it's kind of a wide sort of country. <laughs> okay. So he set off, and there was a film made of it, and it's a very moving film, and he managed to run a marathon, I think it was a marathon in a day, basically hopping along because he had to wear a wooden stump on the half leg. It caused tremendous bleeding and pain and everything like that. But he raised millions and millions for cancer research and inspired lots and lots of people. And he didn't get to the other side of Canada. So at one level, he failed. But he's an absolute success. The need is to learn from adversity or failure. So the question always is, what is this event teaching me? The truth is, everything and everybody is our teacher. So every day, are we learning? And before we go to bed at night, we can ask, what have I learned from living today? If we are to master our mind and enjoy success, we need to set standards. And the standard that you set is you always do your best. Mother Teresa said, God does not require you to succeed. 
He only requires that you try. And to try means to do our best. And this is to give all to the situation, no more or no less. We cannot do more than our best, and we should not do less. When we do our best, then we give all. And when we give all, there's no ego anymore, no sense of doing. It no longer feels like work. We stop judging ourselves. We stop criticizing ourselves. And it is in doing our best that satisfaction arises, not in succeeding. Because in doing our best, we are satisfied with ourselves. Doing our best eliminates the need for success, so-called. In fact, doing our best is success. And if we do not do our best, we will die with the best we had to give still inside of us. So do not look for a lot when we only give a little. As Ralph Waldo Trine said in his book, In Tune with the Infinite, if you go to the ocean with a cup and only get a cup full, do not accuse the ocean of being miserly. Doing our best should be applied in all activities. If we cannot do it in the small activities of life, we will not do it in the large. So set one standard for your life and apply it to all of your life. Mahatma Gandhi said, no matter how insignificant the thing you have to do, do it as well as you can. Give it as much as your care and attention as you would give to the one thing you regard as most important. For it will be by these small things that you shall be judged. Mother Teresa's maxim was, do the ordinary things extraordinarily well. So compete against ourselves and not others. How are we today compared to yesterday? And this is how to realize our potentiality. The next factor is that we need to be present. The present moment is a present. It's a gift. And we should avail of the gift. We take care of the future by attending to the present. Otherwise we live in dreamland. Whatever we attend to grows stronger and whatever we neglect dies. The past and future absorb energy whereas energy flows in the present moment. In the present are all possibilities. The past, however, is dead and fixed and the future is limited to imagination based on our past knowledge. With imagination, we often create obstacles or limits which are not there. We say, I wouldn't be able to do that. And yet subsequent experience shows us that we can. In the present, we get one-pointed attention and we hold to the intended outcome with such unbending purpose that we refuse to allow obstacles to consume or dissipate the attention. The Shankaracharya says, always think what you can do and not what you cannot do. One breeds confidence and the other breeds doubt. Well, if we're to enjoy success, we have to master the heart and the heart is mastered by love. Thereby, it enjoys love 
generosity, service, friendship, joy, compassion, peace and completeness. Strength of purpose is only possible with strength of heart. The mind gets all its strength from the heart. Without the support of the heart, nothing can be achieved. And just think of the number of things that we undertake without putting our heart into it. For the heart to fully support our endeavours, it needs to be filled with faith, love and service. So with regard to faith, one must have unfaltering faith combined with a wisely directed purpose. And this faith will either be faith in God and his providence, or else faith in oneself, i.e. self-confidence. Self-trust is the most essential ingredient for success. I have worked as an accountant for many years, and I advised a lot of people, and some of the people were entrepreneurs, and some of them became remarkably successful people. And all these entrepreneurs, I think without exception that I knew, at one stage were completely and utterly insolvent, had absolutely no money to their name whatsoever. But the interesting thing that I noticed about them was that even when they had absolutely no money, they never thought they were poor. They never suffered from poverty. And what you saw was that they had a rich image of themselves, always. So even when there was no money, they knew they were rich in talent. So with faith in ourselves, we will not be concerned with the opinions of others unless they are wise. And we will be true to ourselves. True faith is accompanied by endurance. Edison, when he was inventing the light bulb, tried 10,000 different experiments and each one of them failed. And he had an assistant who after the 10,000 experiment had failed said, look, shouldn't we give up? This is absolutely ridiculous. We don't know how to make an electric light bulb. And Edison replied, that's not true. We now know 10,000 ways it doesn't work. <laughs> right? Well, I don't know whether you know, there is no human being in the world who has more patents to his name than Edison. With faith, we are not restrained or hesitant in our approach. We give it all that we have got, and often that is the exact amount required for success. Less than all is often not sufficient. Consider how many people have thrown up their hands just when a little more effort, a little more patience, a little more faith would have resulted in a successful outcome. This giving all ensures that we are determined to succeed, and being determined to succeed is the surest way to hold failure at bay. Again, Abraham Lincoln said, the possibility that we may fail in the struggle, this was to do with the uh, Civil War now, the possibility that we may fail in the struggle ought not to deter us from the support of a cause we believe to be just. The real failure in life is not not succeeding, but the failure to try. With faith and the resulting enthusiasm and endurance, success does come. The next factor with mastery of the heart then is love. 
So let love be the motivation for action and not the reward. Most people only undertake an action for the reward they expect. They bargain and make a demand from the activity. And this limits how much they give because it is always limited to the size of the anticipated reward. As said earlier, because the attention is given to the reward, the mind is split between the execution of the action and the attainment of the reward. And this reduces the quality of the action. If we love it, we give it our all and thus we give it our best. Not to do what we love or not to do whatever we do with love is not to have lived life to the full. So in the moment just act. Let go everything. Desire, intention, outcome, everything. Do not concern ourselves with the praise or criticism of others whether we're doing well or not. Just do the work for its own sake. Love the work and not the fruit or outcome of the work. If we only love the outcome, then the work will be a drudgery for us. This is why washing up is a drudgery for so many people, because we only love when it's finished. In this way, love will flow fully and successfully, and it executes the action. If there's no love in the heart, then it'll be full of desires. And if there is love in the heart, then there'll be no room for the desires. There is no such thing as an empty heart. So if you say, oh, I, my heart feels empty at the moment, this is simply not true. The heart is always full. It's either full of love or it's full of desires. And the choice is ours. The feeling of real success is not determined by the number of desires that we satisfy, but in being satisfied in ourselves. When there is desire, there is excessive effort, and when there is aversion, we resist. We struggle against the universe. Both of these are exhausting. Nature, however, functions with effortless ease, and so do actions motivated by love. As Jesus said, consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. Flowers do not try to smell. Trees do not try to grow. This is simply their nature. It is the nature of the sun to shine and the water to flow. And love makes everything flow. So go with the flow. Desires will be in conflict with each other, dragging the person one way and the other. And the result is many tasks initiated and few completed. You only have to look at your own home, as they say. Love gives the heart singularity of purpose. If we want water, we do not dig a hundred holes one foot deep, but we dig one hole a hundred foot deep. So love our customers and treat them as your own self. Take care of their interests and they will take care of yours. With love in the heart, we accept things as they are and are not tormented by how we would wish them to be. We can work for change in the future, but always fully accepting things as they are in this moment. It's like rearing a child. 
you rear them with the vision that one day he or she will be an adult but you accept them as they are fully right now with this acceptance comes the willingness to be responsible i.e. not blaming others or anything for our own situation and then we have the ability to respond and not react response is creative and appropriate whereas reaction is violent and inappropriate reaction is never related to the situation but to our beliefs or feelings and with reaction we learn nothing we are simply working from our existing knowledge with response everything and everybody is our teacher so with acceptance there is a welcoming of life all of it even Monday mornings with acceptance comes detachment and attachment is based on fear and insecurity and with attachment the heart narrows and the possibilities decrease whereas with acceptance the heart is open and wide as wide as the universe this openness results in creativity with no imposition of outcomes on others thus there's no force in our lives so never act or decide out of fear, doubt, excitement or greed. If you can keep those four out of a decision, it's very hard to make a mistake. They are the recipe for failure, whereas love is the recipe for success. The other aspect of, to master the heart is service. And the secret of success is to live for others. Whatever people need, give them that. Find one need and give ourselves fully to it. If our heart is split over a hundred things, we will achieve nothing. And if a man dedicates himself to one thing, he will master it. This is the surest way to succeed. Like a hand serves the needs of the body, serve the needs of all. Money is simply a byproduct from helping others get what they want. It is the universe rewarding us for helping others. To see needs, we need an open heart. And when mind and heart work together, we apply that attribute in which we naturally and chiefly excel to a particular need and success is assured. So with measure in the body, reason in the mind, and love in the heart, we gain mastery of the world. But that's not all. Because the other half of the sentence is, to be successful, we need to be a companion of the self. If worldly success causes us to dedicate our lives to worldly matters only, and we do not seek companionship of the self, then in the viewpoint of the wise, we have failed miserably with our lives. Real success cannot mean the accumulation of dead things. Mother Teresa was highly successful and when she died, her only possessions, if they could be called possessions, were a notebook, a few pencils, two saris, a Bible and nothing else. Another of the world's great successes, Socrates, made the following prayer. He said, O auspicious path, and you other deities of this place, grant to me to become beautiful inwardly, 
and that all my outward good may prosper my inner soul. Grant that I may esteem wisdom the only riches and that I may have only so much gold as self-restraint may handsomely carry. So are we willing to esteem wisdom the only riches and have only so much gold as self-restraint may handsomely carry? Ralph Waldo Trine says that the great secret of the highly successful life is to infuse the mental and physical with the spiritual. In other words, to spiritualize all and so to raise all to the highest possibilities and powers. So do this and we will enjoy true success. The scriptures guide us as to how to be truly successful. So what is the advice of the scriptures? And again, to just take from the Christian tradition, Jesus said, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. And elsewhere he says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all else will be added unto you. Now if we got the kingdom of God and all else was added unto us, surely we would be truly successful. And Jesus also says, What is a man advantaged if he gained the whole world but lose himself? So in scripture it's put in very black and white terms. We can have everything, the whole world, but if we miss one thing, the pearl of great price, I, knowing the truth of who we are, we have completely failed. So to be a companion of the self is to be spiritually successful. It means to be true to ourselves at all times. It is to do with being, whereas worldly success is to do with becoming. Worldly success involves change, and spiritual success simply means being yourself. Worldly success is transient, and spiritual success is eternal. Worldly success is complex, spiritual success is simple. Spiritual success is the fulfillment of the human objective. And in the end, spiritual success is the only true success and so only the wise are truly successful. All that is required for spiritual success are meditation, study of scripture and the words of the wise in the company of like-minded people, and practice as outlined by scripture and the wise. It is not the acquisition of anything new. Real success lies not in getting but in letting go. When we go about realizing our potential, we often make the mistake of seeking to attain something. But in attaining, we only confine ourselves. To realize our full potential, we do not have to attain anything. We simply have to let go our accumulated ignorance. And if we cannot understand this fundamental fact, that real success is in letting go and not attaining, 
we cannot proceed to truly being successful. It is the dissolution of what we are not. It is a return home, a return to being yourself. And then we live as we are, and this is to live successfully. To be a companion of the self, your true self. So to conclude, how do the truly successful live? And in the words of the Shankaracharya, they live off interest alone. Just imagine that in financial terms. Just living off interest alone. Wouldn't be bad, would it? Well, the wise live off interest alone. So living does not burn up their real capital because they live according to universal law. They do not have sweat on their brow, but go with the flow. Lao Tzu says, An integral being knows without going, sees without looking, and accomplishes without doing. And the Shankaracharya says, The ultimate mark and use of knowledge of the self is in efficiency and uniqueness of action. Detachment in its origin and completion, while emotionally bound to nothing. Peace is retained during this procedure, and bliss is experienced all along. And this is what it is to be successful. So may you all be truly successful. And thank you. So, what questions would you like to ask? We'll make you ask the first two. <laughs> yes, there. Mr. Ronald, I have the sense that the success you speak about is a moment-to-moment -moment affair that it's not something that we would work on for maybe a week or two weeks or three weeks and hope to achieve something at that stage, but that you can make an instant commitment to take on board the principles that you've mentioned, and, and that that basically is it. I'm afraid so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We sort of have a concept of success, which is that I work really, really hard, and then I become successful, and then I really, really do nothing much ever again. It's not like that. I'm afraid there's no time off. When you're successful, you have to be successful all your life. So there is no time off. But it's not that sort of lack of measure approach that sometimes we fall into, the idea of selling our souls to the organization for a period of time. And then, as I said, having accumulated, say, vast sums of money, then I can just pursue all the pleasures or the particular things that I'm interested in. It doesn't work like that. And I've said this before, but a, a man that I know, a professional man, and at the time when he spoke to me, he was about 48. He'd made an awful lot of money in the previous three years. And we were walking down a road together, and he says to me, you know, now that I've made so much, he said, I'm really going to live my life. Now he was 48, so half of it had already gone. The real tragedy is 
that he's forgotten how to live. So now he's a man who's forgotten how to live with an awful lot of money. So I'm afraid he won't really live his life unless he wakes up to what life is. In a way, we've forgotten how to live. And we need to remember, again, how to live. And that's not something that you remember, as you say, on a Monday, and it carries you through Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. You need to be awake all your life. So there is no time off for the truly successful. <laughs> yes, anybody else? Yes. Is it true that we can resist success? And um, if so, why would we do such a thing? Well, people can resist success. There's no problem with that. There are people who are afraid to shine. The one thing about being successful is people will look at you. They will notice you. And some people don't like that. So they like to hide amongst the masses. That is one of man's big problems. And you often find this with very talented people. In order not to shine, in order not to realize that they are limitless, they hide their talent. I mean, I've seen it in the School of Philosophy. Sometimes you get people, and they might have a very bad stammer. Let's say, over a period of time, they become cured of that stammer. And what you find is they have a, a magnificent speaking voice. Magnificent. But they had to hide it. Otherwise, the world and they would have to admit that they were magnificent. So it's a thing to watch out for, this refusal to shine. You know, we don't accept criticism very well, but we equally don't accept praise. When people say, oh, I think you're fantastic, you look at them suspiciously. <laughs> and, uh, these sort of things. And when somebody says to you, I thought that was fantastic, you say, yes, I agree. It's a very important thing. If you're not going to be able to receive praise, you'll never be able to transcend criticism. It is very important to shine. You don't have a right to deny your talents. You know the story from the Bible. I mean, it's, it's a very true story. You don't want to be taking the elevator down after you die, as they say. <laughs> I happen to love a really good singing voice. And I have an appalling singing voice. And I sort of envied these people who have magnificent voices. And once Pavarotti was being interviewed, the interviewer said to him, how much do you practice? And he says, well, every day I practice for, I think it was either six or nine hours. So whatever desire I had to be an opera singer died on the instant. Right? And she said, well, what do you do? And he says, well, for three hours, I go up and down the scales. And I thought, I can't imagine anything more appalling than that, going up and down the scales. And she said, well, how do you do that? And he said, well, I consider my voice as a gift from God. And it is my duty to keep it at its highest level. Which is fantastic. And he brought delight to millions. A responsibility comes with talent and knowledge. So let's say you're a doctor, and we make it slightly humorous. There's a doctor and there's a plumber. They're both walking down the street, and somebody ahead of them has a heart attack and collapses to the ground. And we make it a busy doctor and a busy plumber, and they both want to walk by. The plumber is less guilty 
<laughs> because the doctor has the knowledge. Once you have the knowledge, then with that comes responsibility. And responsibility is only the ability to respond. So responsibility is not a burden. We take the word incorrectly and we think it's a means of burden. Responsibility is simply the ability to respond. And so if you have knowledge and there's a need arises, there comes the ability to respond to that need. So, that's it. Yes, anybody else? Hello, you mentioned that your background was in finance yes. as an accountant. May I ask if you were able to combine both and operate in tandem or if in following the truths of success that you had to opt for one rather than the other. So you doubt whether <laughs> there's anything such as an honest accountant. All right. I did train as an accountant and I did work as a financial advisor to people and I did join the School of Philosophy and I did make endeavours to become a man of truth. It was very interesting because I was up in Townley Hall, which is the School of Philosophy's residential building, and Mr. McLaren had come to take a residential week. I was in the uh, hall where he was talking to us. It was a group of men in the hall and he said, gentlemen, one day all your actions will have to become honest ones. And I remember breaking out into a cold sweat. <laughs> <laughs> And literally, perspiration pouring down the back of my neck and inside my shirt as my life flashed in front of me. What I was faced with was this point that uh, Wee Wei Kananda made. One had to be practical. There was the fear that if I became an honest man, I would become a poor honest man. And I didn't want the poverty bit. But I also wanted to be a man of truth. It struck me that it was not possible for a dishonest man to become a man of truth. So I was faced with this horrible decision, as they say, and I decided, okay, that I would make my endeavours to become an honest man. The interesting thing is that the making of money or wealth, in that narrow sense, never went. As the honesty became more and more and more, and there's still plenty of work to do, but as the honesty became more and more and more, the wealth came to me more and more and more. I the chairman of a particular company. They were paying me X amount of money and I felt that they should give me a rise. I felt that a proper rise as for a chairman's fee would have been, say, at the maximum 25% rise on what they were paying me. So I raised this at a board meeting. As is customary when something is to do with yourself, you leave the room while they can say all sorts of things about you and decide whether you're worthy of a rise or not. In fact, I went home, and that was fine, and they discussed whether they were going to give me the rise or not, and I got a phone call the next day, and they said, yes, they had decided to give me a rise, and they were going to give me a rise of 50%. So I suppressed the gasp, because gasps do go over the telephone line. I said, I'm very curious to know how you came to that decision. The man who I was speaking to said, well, the question we faced was, where would we get somebody who was so interested in our welfare? And that's what they were paying for. 
somebody who was truly interested in their welfare. It proved to me this point that Socrates makes, that virtue does lead to money and to every other good of man. So it is possible. I mean, even the mafia want honest accountants. <laughs> Nobody wants a dishonest accountant. You might want them to be dishonest to other people, but you want them to be honest to you. There is no dichotomy. And this is one of the tragedies of life, is that, let's say for a number of people, there isn't really a spiritual aspect to their lives. And that, I would say, is a tragedy, but anyway. Some people who do take up spiritual work, they keep the things separate. So they either try to negate the creation and say, oh, well, money-making is evil and nasty and gross and mundane and all that sort of stuff. And the only life is the spiritual life. And that's not valid. The real challenge in life is to reconcile the two or to merge the two. And I'm just going to quote Ralph Waldo Trine, and he said it beautifully. He said, the great secret of the highly successful life is to infuse the mental and physical with the spiritual. In other words, to spiritualize all, and so to raise all to the highest possibilities and powers. And this is at a lower level. But again, Leon McLaren, you know, who used to come out with these pithy statements that would sort of change your life. But he said, people like to do business with people they like. So I decided to be a nice guy. <laughs> Just to be a nice person. And that's what you find. That if you're a nice person, people like to do business with you. And so it is very, very simple. If you leave out the spiritual world, then life becomes very complex. And being successful is just very, very, very hard work. But spiritual truth, or true principle, and all of these sort of things, makes life incredibly simple. And incredibly effortless. You know, you think of a child, a very, very young child, makes no effort to be lovable. None at all. It gets sick all over your new outfit. It wakes up all the time in the day. It never says thank you because it can't speak anyway. Nothing. doesn't praise nothing. And yet we adore the baby. Now, from about teenagers onwards, we make incredible efforts to be lovable <laughs> and end up joining Lonely Hearts Clubs. So it is effortless. It's totally effortless. And success isn't hard work. When you don't understand, or the less you understand, the harder the work is. And the more you understand, the easier it is. So, is that all right? Thank you very much for that very enlightening answer, I must right. say. But I just have one other brief question. Is the honest accountant's responsibility then to, well, you say the mafia would like an honest accountant. Yes. But... Is the honest accountant happy to be working for the mafiosa or for dishonest clients? Right. Well, this is obviously a theoretical answer on my part. <laughs> what you should do is you should work where you can do most good. So that's what you should do. Sometimes, again, people come into the school of philosophy or they take up other uh, spiritual work and they form very righteous views. So sometimes you get a person and 
in about term two or, or term three of philosophy, they come up to you very shamefacedly and say, I work in advertising. <laughs> you know, uh, they, uh, as if advertising is evil, you see? So people form very narrow viewing points on good and bad. Now, the thing is, wherever you find yourself, raise it to the highest level. That's the key. Wherever you find yourself, your job may be to support the good or it may be to so-called reform the bad. But wherever you can have most influence is where you should be. So that's it. Okay. Yes, anybody else? I'd like to thank you very much for a wonderful Thank you. Just one point comes to me there. And he lays a lot of emphasis on virtue. And, well, I'm sure he's delighted to hear I Very good. But virtue has meant everything. But virtue has given me great content. Absolutely. And I wouldn't say I've succeeded in what I've liked in my life, but I'm in progress. Yes, very good. And I think I've given my wife and my children a reasonably happy life. And I try to bring spirituality into their lives. I bought a plot of land outside Greystone, six by four, centrally heated with broadband. And I was happy to do that. And my wife says, I see you as well. Very good. All I can say is, virtue gave me the joy of doing that. Yes. But I can do that, I'm not worried about it. Children are a bit concerned. That's all I have to say. No, Thank very you. good. It's very important that virtuous people exemplify the benefit of virtue. People don't have confidence in virtue to the same degree as they used to in the past. So people believe that cunning and taking shortcuts and expediency and all of these things can lead to success. They actually don't. It's very good to look at words. The opposite to virtue is vice. And a man who is not virtuous is vicious. So if you don't want to be a vicious man or woman, then be virtuous. And vice or viciousness is a weakness to the heart. And virtue is the strength of the heart. Compassion takes strength. Generosity takes strength. To love another takes strength. And if a man or woman practices virtue, they end up with a strong heart. And if you have a strong heart, you cannot be exploited. Only the weak can be exploited. So the person who develops their heart through virtue cannot be insulted. They don't take insult. Virtue is strength. Anyway, it's just so important nowadays that it be demonstrated in all aspects of life that virtue pays off. Again, it's very interesting that in the School of Philosophy, which you know had its own journey for X number of years, Leon McLaren once put a question to the Shankaracharya. He said, there is a fear in the school that if people become conscious, then they will not be successful. Effectively, that's what he said. And the Shankaracharya replied, he said, it is impossible for the conscious to be failures. 
The man who's awake must succeed. The man who's in a dream misses all the opportunities. And I don't know whether you notice this, but when greed you know, takes possession of you, your heart really narrows. And you can only see the desired outcome. So you miss all the opportunities to the left and to the right. Whereas when a person is not possessed by greed, their hearts and minds are wide open and they're capable of responding to whatever is there. And there's always opportunity there. Could have been O'Brien, but when supermarkets first came to Ireland, the story or the anecdotal story is that he was passing by the back of a supermarket and he realised that they weren't going to have a hundred dustbins outside the back of the supermarket to remove their rubbish. He had his idea, now whether he saw it elsewhere, but of the skip. And so that's what he did, he provided skips. So you can make money from rubbish. So, thank you. Yes, anybody else? There's a gentleman behind. Thanks very much for a, a very um, uh, helpful talk. No problem. Um, I just uh, struggled with one thing. You talked about sleeping six hours a night. Yes. <laughs> Uh, it's too much for you, is it? Oh, well, I, I could sleep eight to ten hours a yes. night, but it's just how do you meet the challenge of actually filling the time that you're awake? Oh. <laughs> I said it in a previous talk, that one possibility why people find it so difficult to get out of bed is that they've nothing to get out of bed for. Now, if you think back to your childhood, if your mother is still alive, she will tell you that you used to leap out of bed every morning. They had to force you to stay in bed. And the reason why is because you loved life. Not bits of life, but all of life. Once you were awake, you wanted to participate in everything. And that's what, as I said, made you leap out of bed. We tend to get out of bed very reluctantly. <laughs> you know? If there weren't bills to pay and all that sort of stuff, and if the body was self-cleansing, we wouldn't get out of bed. The thing is to have things, and I've said this before in a different way, but to have things worth dying for. When you have things worth dying for, then you really live for them. So let's say, ordinarily, if a man loves his wife and he loves his children, they are worth dying for. So he will really live for them. But just to take the practical thing of six hours, it's a maximum of six hours, by the way. So, <laughs> now, in order to make this practical, and it is practical, by the way, the Shankaracharya is one of the things where he was, you know, all his answers are full of absolute love and compassion and tenderness and gentleness, except when it comes to sleep. <laughs> and he's very, very firm on this. Because there's a thing that one needs to appreciate. It's like, if you overeat, your body becomes unhealthy. There is no gain from the extra food beyond the need. It actually is a burden to the body. It has to consume lots of energy just to uh, digest the food. So you actually end up with less energy. Now, if you spend more time in bed than you need, you have less energy. We have no idea of the price we pay for excessive sleeping. It's what has us so dopey all day long. 
from. And I'm being very gentle and kind as I'm saying all these things. Now, however, it's not a matter of just cutting back the hours. All right? That would be too harsh a treatment for us. The first thing we have to do is to learn to sleep better. Most of our sleep is troubled sleep, either by dreaming, by excessive activity or something like that. So we have to learn to be able to let go the day so that we fall into deep sleep. Now, I don't have a blackboard or a whiteboard here, but if I can just describe it. If you take a person who sleeps eight hours, and I'm going to artificially divide these times, okay? But a person who sleeps eight hours, ordinarily they will spend two hours going into deep sleep. Then they will sleep in deep sleep, let's say, or if it's good, they will sleep in deep sleep for four hours. And then they spend two hours coming out of it. In the two hours they coming out of that sleep, they actually consume more energy than they gain. And if you want a simple proof of this, there are times you've woken up in the morning, felt absolutely as bright as a button, looked at your watch and said, this is ridiculous, and I'm going back to sleep again. And then you wake up two hours later absolutely exhausted. Now, the reason why is you broke the sleep, the deep sleep was broken, so that extra two hours is in dreaming sleep. And for every unit of energy you're gaining, you're consuming two units of energy in dreams. Now, I'm going to give you a very startling statistic. The Shankaracharya occasionally gave very startling statistics. He says, the amount of energy required to do an eight-hour day of work is consumed in one dream. <sighs> in one dream. For example, a dream is totally creative. Does that make sense? You make it out of nothing. Let's say I asked you to write a novel every day. Do you think that would consume your energy? If you had to write a novel every single day. Well, in our dreams, we write a novel. When I dream of Lansdowne Road, do you know how many people are there? 45,000. And if I look in any row, there's a different face with different clothes and a different past and a different future. And you have to write the script for all of them. If I only get a try, you have to get all 45,000 rising up and cheering. <laughs> Imagine that energy that's consumed, getting all 45,000 people, except for the one Englishman, <laughs> to rise up. What we have to do is we have to learn how to sleep properly. And when you learn to sleep properly, what will actually happen is you'll go into deep sleep much more quickly, like you did as a child. Again, you know the way you watch a child, there they are sucking on a bottle, and the bottle begins to waver a little bit, and then it's gone. They are gone. You and I are working our way through the day for two hours, and then we're gone. So the idea is that one should enter into deep sleep quickly, and then come out of it quickly. And then let's say you had four, it's normally four and a half hours. In that four and a half hours, you will be as refreshed as if you had eight hours. So it's not deprivation. It's getting the fullness of the need for rest, but in a much more efficient way. Let's say you do it six hours, you'll have an extra two hours a day. And a man can do an awful lot with two hours. An awful lot. And if you think, well, there's not much I want to do, well, you can do it for others then. 
Maybe you could repay your mother for all those mornings she got up early to look after you. <laughs> if you do learn to sleep the proper measure and sleep well, it will affect the 24 hours. You'll find that you're much brighter, much sharper. You consume far less energy during the day. And again, I'll just say another thing, and you know, you don't have to accept these, but I don't know whether it's still true. If a person practices philosophy for a period of time, they tend to consume less energy. So that they're less wandering into the past and the future, they're less agitated, they worry less, all these sort of things. In the School of Philosophy, if you're in the school for a while, you're invited to come for a residential weekend, which starts on a Friday evening and ends on a Sunday evening. And after a while further, you can come for a week. And the person in charge of catering about 15 years ago told me that when a group comes down to Townley Hall for the first time, they consume more in a weekend, i.e. between Friday and Sunday evening, than the senior group does in a week. And it's not that we have all these thin, emaciated, Spanish-looking waiter-type senior-level people at all. But it's a very important thing to note. When a man is an amateur at anything, he puts far too much effort into it. So if you remember your first driving lesson, you would have been trying to put everything into it, and you found it exhausting. Now you can drive for much longer periods of time without that exhaustion, because your driving has become efficient. Well, we need to become efficient. We're amateurs in the negative sense of amateur now. We're amateurs at living. And we put far too much effort into living. And the less effort we put in, the more successful we will be. So enjoy your sleep. <laughs> How do you fill it? Well, the interesting thing is this, is if the scope of your life is just yourself, you won't be able to fill it. That's the truth of the matter. There isn't enough to you to fill a life. So you need to incorporate others. If there's a wife and 23 children, that fills it out a little bit. So the idea is to have a bigger life. And the bigger your life is, the more people will be in it, and the more needs there will be, and the more ability there will be to respond. But you won't have sweat on your brow. The bigger life doesn't mean a very busy life. It means a very full life, but not busy in the sense of frenetic. I've used this analogy before, but if a human being tries to satisfy his or her heart by living for a few people, then they will not succeed. And I won't go into the full analogy, but if you have a very powerful motor car and you only drive it at five miles per hour, it doesn't satisfy. And if you have a heart which is capable of loving at a very high level, but you decide to only love a few, then it is not a satisfied heart. So those who are willing to expand their lives and incorporate more and more into their lives enjoy satisfaction and fullness of life. What happens to them is, if you take the person who lives a very small life, what he does is he, he or she loses measure. And we just make you know, an exaggerated example, I hope. They work far too hard during the week and then they try to rest far too much at the weekend. 
Now, normally they try to rest with entertainment, which they also find exhausting, because the entertainment is full of activity. It's just different activity. What they do is they enjoy no rest while working, but only rest when they're inactive. Now, the wise man or woman enjoys rest in the activity and when there's no activity. And that's the secret to life. Rest is not at the end of an activity. It's when you know how to execute the action, you rest in it. And again, if you take, say, a great sportsman, and we just take somebody like Tiger Woods, and I don't know whether you play golf, but if you've ever watched, say, a poor golfer, he really has a go at sending that ball down the fairway. And the amount of effort he puts into it. And you watch somebody like Tiger Woods, and it appears to be effortless. Because it is effortless, you have so much more energy. Now, if a man is willing to take up meditation, then he gains an access to a source of energy which is not available to ordinary man. It's like this. Let's say you live your life as an individual. Then you have to rely on your individual source of energy. If you meditate and you enjoy good meditation, what happens is all individuality falls away. Does it make sense that when you're asleep, individuality falls away? There is no knowledge of being man or woman or being overdrawn or anything like that at all. All individuality falls away and you join at a level with the universe. Do you ever wonder where you get the energy from in sleep? Where does it come from? Where it comes from is, for a moment, you stop being a separate individual and you join with the universe. And it's like being connected to the central electricity station. So you are re-energized. Now, unfortunately, it happens in sleep. All right? There is another source of energy which is not in sleep, but in full wakefulness. And so if a man or woman meditates, and they fall deeply, deeply still, then all sense of individuality falls away. And again, they connect with a universal source of energy and become absolutely charged with a very fine energy. Does it make sense that you can have one energy to cut a tree, but it takes a different energy to read 15 pages of Plato. And there's many a man who can cut a tree, but on page two of Plato he's fallen asleep. Because it takes a very fine energy. It also takes a very fine energy to make a decision. The energy that you need to cut a tree will not help you to decide, should I marry this woman or not? That's a different type of energy. And if you don't have it, you have to rely on prayer. <laughs> that it will work out, right? If a man is willing to live a measured life, and if he does, and he takes up meditation, he finds an abundance of energy available to him. So he doesn't need the same hours of sleep. He doesn't need the same amount of food. He finds that the use of the mind is very easy and restful and flows and his heart is not constrained or distorted by greed and anger. So he actually, as the Shankaracharya said, is he lives off interest alone. 
Now, there's nothing you can do that will stop you becoming old physically. From where I'm looking, this is absolutely proven. There is nothing which will stop you growing old physically. But you never have to grow old mentally or emotionally. You're meant to die as a child. With the innocence and the energy and the enthusiasm and the love and the openness and the curiosity and the questions that a child has. If you live this measured life and if you practice meditation, then that's how you will die. You'll grow more and more innocent. And the interesting thing about children is that they are absolutely lovable. So you will grow more and more lovable. <laughs> and they will not put you into an old people's home. <laughs> That's what I'm working on anyway. So, anybody else? Yes, gentleman here. Mr. Mulholland. Yes. I would like to ask a question about the now. The now. Yeah. I find that I, I live my life because of my age and because of philosophy. I live my life without planning too much. Very good. And when I wake up, I seem to be preempted or told what has to be done. Very good. What I want to ask you is, am I fooling myself <laughs> or am I pushing myself? Yeah. Well... From what you say, the answer is no, you're not fooling yourself. What you said is actually confirmed by what the Shankaracharya says. So rather than seek my confirmation, it's far better to have the confirmation of the Shankaracharya. What he says is this, knowledge only arises in the moment. Imagine that. It only arises in the moment. It only arises in the moment to meet the need of the moment. So it never arises in advance. You do not have to plan tomorrow. The knowledge arises in the moment of what the need of the moment is. Most of the time, we're planning for tomorrow, so we miss the knowledge that is arising now. And a very simple example is of driving. Most people, when they're driving, are planning what they're going to do when they arrive. And they don't arrive because they have a crash. <laughs> because they're not accepting the knowledge that is arising in the moment which will allow them to have a safe journey. So knowledge only arises in the moment and you need to be in the moment to receive the knowledge. And you often find this. You can plan a meeting, let's say in business. You can plan, I'm going to say this and I'm going to say that and then when he says that, I've got this superb answer which will defeat that point and that will make such and such happen. But it doesn't work out like that. And you know what you should do at a meeting? You should listen. You shouldn't talk. You should listen. And in the listening, the knowledge arises of what is needed. For example, again, the Shankaracharya said this, and my own experience it is true. Somebody looking at this scene here tonight could think that the questions are there and the answers are here. And that is completely untrue. And never, ever, ever do an exam like that. Never think that the question is on the paper and the answer is in your head. The answer is in the question. It's always in the question. 
All you have to do is to listen to the question. So let's say if I was in good shape as a speaker on a particular night, if I really listen to your question, the answer is drawn out of me. It's not my answer at all. It's your answer to your question. Now, if I'm not on song and I'm very nervous, I've got my store of answers. <laughs> really great answers. Superb answers which have worked in the past. What happens then is you give me your question and I give you my answer. And it doesn't satisfy you at all. Because it was my answer. But if I really, and when I say I, anybody, really listens, then the answer is contained in the question. So you're absolutely right. When you wake in the morning, just awake and let life come to you. You don't have to go running after life. It actually does come to you, you know. It's coming to you every moment. Everything is coming towards you. The only question is, are you there to receive it? If your heart is not filled with vice and your mind is not filled with prejudice, then you will receive life and respond to it. If you want one other little bit of comfort, not that you need any comfort, the Shankaracharya has said this as well. He gave the example of a baby. When a baby is very young, it cannot do anything. So everything is done for the baby. But after a little while, and it's lying there, it thinks, I want to be independent. That's what they do. They can't tell you that, but that's what they're actually doing. From a very early age, they watch how the strap is done. They say, right, when I get control of these fingers, I'm going to be able to undo that strap and make a break for it. <laughs> like the Shawshank Redemption, you know? They see that the spoon is being brought to the mouth by a hand, and so they start to grab out at the spoon because they want to bring the spoon to their own mouth. Now initially the mother, in order to stop the child removing one of its eyes with a spoon, will insist on holding the spoon. But the child more and more aggressively says, I want to hold that spoon myself. So eventually the mother backs off. And the child loses the remarkable service of the mother. And now it has to start fending for itself. And this is what we do. We become independent, but in becoming independent, we become separated, and then we have to do everything ourselves. And what the Shankaracharya says, if you would only learn to surrender like a child and allow yourself to be cared for, you would be fully cared for, totally and completely. As Jesus said, every hair on your head is counted. That's care, isn't it? If every hair on your head is counted, if it's down to that detail. But we don't trust. You know the only person we trust? Me. <laughs> right? Look at this trouble this fool has got into, and I continue to trust him. Now, let's say you believed in God. If we, I'm just going to make that assumption, you don't have to, but let's say you did believe in God. What idiocy is there to believe in your intelligence compared to God's intelligence. It's absolutely ridiculous to rely or to refer to this ego, this false individual self. 
as a basis for making decisions with what you're going to do with life. So you're absolutely right. You should wake up in the morning, be still, and let knowledge present itself to you, let life present itself to you, and respond with an open heart. And that would be an excellent way to, or is an excellent way to live. You're probably the envy of everybody else in this room. <laughs> uh, can I ask one more question, yes, please? absolutely. Uh, it's to do with criticism. How do you defeat criticism of yourself and others? I believe it's to do with my overgrown ego. Yes. I'm afraid you are absolutely correct. <laughs> you will not be able to stop criticizing others until you stop criticizing yourself. Do you have any children? I do. I have. Yeah, all right. Well, if you, you know, you may have to go back a few years for this, but anyway, if you go back when they were little babies and you held the little baby in your arms and the little baby was looking into your eyes, did you ever see any criticism in the very young baby as it looked at you? This was not because it thought it had Brad Pitt as its father. <laughs> All right? Because it didn't criticize itself. It didn't even know how to criticize. A little baby doesn't know, how would you do it? It has no idea what the right height for a father is, or how long a nose should be, or how short it should be, or how many teeth he should have. It has no standards whatsoever. So it can't criticize. But you and I have standards. That's how hot the coffee should be. And if people don't get it absolutely right, they got it wrong and are worthy of criticism. So, the first person to stop criticizing is yourself. And we find this very difficult to do. I mean, even at a physical level, there, I don't know of a human being who can look in the mirror and say, gosh, that's a good reflection there. <laughs> <laughs> Would you look at the kindness in those eyes? <laughs> but did you ever see a little baby looking at itself? Or a little child looking at itself in the mirror? Again, no criticism at all. Now, how are you to stop criticizing yourself? You don't do it by trying to persuade yourself. You don't say, well, actually, I'm very good at this, and I'm very good at that, and that makes up for this other deficiency. That doesn't work. You have to find out who you are. And you can take it many ways. I just take it from Genesis. In Genesis, it is said that God did, I can't remember if he did on the first day, but then he did part of the creation on the first day, and he looked out and he saw it was good. And he did this for the five days, and then on the sixth day he looked out and he saw that it was very good. And the truth of the matter is it hasn't got any worse since then. It is very good. You have no idea of your own perfection. You are made in the image of God. You're not a Monday reject. You are made in the image of God. You are perfect. The child comes into the world with this silent knowledge of its own perfection. And knowing its own perfection, it sees it everywhere. That's why it takes no length of time for the child to love you. You know when you start going dating, how long it takes before you even sort of think, well, there might be something to this relationship. <laughs> you know how long it takes? Months of going to films you don't want to go to and restaurants that don't even really feed you just to see if you can fall in love with someone. And a baby does it on the instant. Because the baby knows its own perfection. 
And the analogy that's sometimes used is if there was a, a bag of gold in a room and we had a young baby and somebody comes in and steals the bag of gold, will the baby see a thief? No. And do you know why the baby doesn't see a thief? It's because there's no thief in the baby. And you and I see a thief because there is a thief in us. We recognize the thief. You can do it a couple of ways. If you want something now very practical to take away with you, one way that I find very useful is in various scriptures, if you can accept the scriptures, in various scriptures they give a description of man. You can take it from the Bhagavad Gita, the Upanishads, from the Dhammapada, from the Bible, wherever you are happy to take it from. Find a description of man and then accept it unreservedly unconditionally that this is the truth about myself and every time the mind throws up an opposite viewpoint where the mind says oh you're a twit then say however the scriptures or the wise say this is who I am and stay with that until the criticism falls away does that make sense well, if you take Shantananda Saraswati, who I have utmost confidence in, he said that we were perfect. So when this mind throws up the possibility that I'm imperfect, I have to ask myself, am I going to obey the rantings of this mind or listen to the words of the wise? And I have to make up my mind. And every time I do make up my mind, and my mind is made up to follow the words of the wise. And if you do that again and again and again, that voice finding no ground to grow in will fall away and set you free. After a while, it will not come back. It's a bit like a beggar at the door. If you keep refusing to open the door, they'll go somewhere else. They'll find another door to knock on. The only reason why criticism visits you is because you welcome it. You say, here's my heart. Come on in. Make me miserable now. Criticism does not come in through the back door. It comes in through the front door. And you leave the door open. I think you just throw it at other people because you're you mad at yourself. Absolutely. Oh, yes, absolutely. You only criticize others because you criticize yourself. Rather than trying to improve the world and surround yourself with people who are beyond criticism, just stop criticizing yourself and you'll find the world improves dramatically. Thank you very much. No problem, sir. All right, are we happy to leave it at that? Okay, well, be very successful.